0: Welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast, with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode from our series Exploring 100 Ideas in Genetics, we're hunting down Huntington's disease, discovering why viruses are so important for geneticists, and chasing the science behind spider goats. Before start, I just want to draw your attention to Genuary, excuse the terrible pun, particularly if you're a fan of wacky gene names. Every day throughout January, the Genetic Society will be tweeting about a different gene, so do follow them at at Gensoc UK to get your fix of genetic fun from armadillo to Van Gogh. And while you're listening, please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show, and of course, tell all your friends. Every other episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're going to be celebrating the Genetic Society's centenary year by exploring some of the top 100 ideas in genetics. So sit back and enjoy these three tales from the world of genes, genomes. And DNA. The year is 1872. A young American doctor, George Huntington, has just started his career, following in the footsteps of his father and grandfather, who were general practitioners in the prosperous Hamptons area of New York. Graduating from Columbia University the year before, at the tender age of 21, George is keen to make an impression on the medical world. Building on a series of intriguing cases first gathered by Pa and Grandpa Huntington, all ancestors of one Geoffrey Francis, who emigrated from England in 1634, George realises that a number of his patients all have the same terrible and progressive disease and that it runs in families. He refers to this condition as chorea, from an ancient Greek word referring to quick dance-like movements of the hands and feet. The reason becomes obvious in this excerpt from his essay published in the Philadelphia Medical and Surgical Reporter, describing the disease in detail.
1: The name chorea is given to the disease on account of the dancing propensities of those who are affected by it, and it is a very appropriate designation. Its most marked and characteristic feature is a clonic spasm affecting the voluntary muscles. The disease commonly begins by slight twitchings in the muscles of the face, which gradually increase in violence and variety. The eyelids are kept winking, the brows are corrugated and then elevated, the nose is screwed first to the one side and then to the other, and the mouth is drawn in various directions, giving the patient the most ludicrous appearance imaginable. The upper extremities may be the first affected, or both simultaneously. As the disease progresses, the mind becomes more or less impaired, in many amounting to insanity, while in others, mind and body gradually fail until death relieves them of their suffering. When either or both the parents have shown manifestations of the disease, one or more of the offsprings invariably suffers from the condition. It never skips a generation to again manifest itself in another.
0: What quickly became known as Huntington's career, and later Huntington's disease, was actually well known for centuries, referred to as Magrams by New Englanders since the 1600s and familiar since the Middle Ages. The first definitive medical description actually comes in 1842, 30 years before George Huntington's paper, in a letter from a Dr Charles Oscar Waters, which notes the key symptoms of the disease and its hereditary nature. In 1846, Charles Gorman had noticed that cases tended to cluster in isolated populations. And by 1860, Norwegian physician Johan Christian Lund had also noted an unusually high prevalence of the condition in people living in the remote area of Setisdalen. But as is so often the case, it's the guy with the best PR who gets the glory. By the early 20th century, geneticist William Bateson, who rediscovered Mendel's laws on inheritance, had used genealogies from affected families to figure out that Huntington's follows a pattern of autosomal dominant inheritance. This means that getting just one faulty copy of the gene from either parent is enough to cause the condition, although it would take another 80 years for researchers to track down the actual gene responsible. But while scientists got on with figuring out the molecular nuts and bolts underpinning Huntington's disease, society got on with being absolutely terrible to families affected by it. Back in colonial New England, people with Huntington's were treated as witches and publicly burned to death. Jumping on the hot new trend for eugenics at the turn of the 20th century, US researchers began tracing detailed family records from affected families and calling for them to be forcibly sterilised so as to avoid passing the condition onwards. In 1916, American geneticist Charles B. Davenport, director of the Biological Laboratory at Cold Spring Harbour in New York and founder of the Eugenics Record Office, published a paper based on family trees in New York and New England, drawn up by physician Elizabeth B. Muncy. In it, he argued that a vast number of cases had stemmed from just a handful of initial progenitors who'd come as colonists to the U.S., and therefore this was justification for immigration restrictions, surveillance of families and compulsory sterilisation. Another absolutely terrible person in this tale is Connecticut psychiatrist Percy Vesey, who in 1932 traced one of his own Huntington's patients back to her 17th century colonial forebears, three married couples from the English village of Bewers in Suffolk, who he saw as the likely seeds of all the US cases of Huntington's disease. As evidence, he cited witchcraft accusations against one woman and her relatives, along with misconduct by the men, and argued for rigid sterilisation of affected families. We can't be smug about our own record here in the UK either. In 1933, The Lancet printed an extract from Vesey's paper, boasting that
1: We Britons may congratulate ourselves on their loss, for there can be no doubt that these men and their progeny were undesirable characters and would nowadays be classified as belonging to the social problem group.
0: And in 1934, British neurologist Macdonald Critchley shamefully added to the stigma by claiming that all members of affected families were
1: liable to bear the marks of a grossly psychopathic taint, and the story of feeble-mindedness, insanity, suicide, criminality, alcoholism and drug addiction becomes unfolded over and over again. Ugh.
0: In fact, vessi's tale of enchanted ancestors turned out to be misleading, in a fascinating feature published in The Lancet much later on, writer Alice Wexler, whose own family is affected by Huntington's disease, points out that Vesey had confused Eleanor Knapp, the immigrant ancestor of Huntington's families in Connecticut, who was never accused as a witch, with Goodwife Wife Knapp, an unrelated woman who was executed as a witch. <laughs> We've come a long way since the hashtag problematic attitudes of the 1930s, at least one might hope, but the scientific story of Huntington's disease has made similar leaps in understanding. In 1983, researchers tracked down the location of the responsible gene fault to human chromosome 4, and by 1993, the actual gene, known as Huntington, had been identified and sequenced. It quickly became obvious that in people with the disease-causing version of the gene, a short section of DNA, just three letters long, was repeated over and over, far more times than in the healthy version. When the gene is decoded within brain cells to make Huntington protein, this so-called triplet repeat, the DNA letters C, A and G, encodes an extra-long run of glutamine amino acids. That's one of the building blocks of proteins. We also know how the triplet repetition happens. It turns out that the molecular machines responsible for copying DNA when cells divide struggle to accurately copy highly repetitive stretches of DNA. Sometimes they lose their place and slip or stutter, sticking in or removing a few extra repeats here and there. It's a bit like trying to read the same word repeated many times over and over in a book. You probably lose your place and forget exactly how many you've read. Intriguingly, the number of repeats is directly linked to the chances of developing the disease. Fewer than 35 CAG repeats and you won't get it. Between 36 and 39, you might be lucky or you might not. But more than 40 repeats leads to the onset of Huntington's around the age of 40. And around 8% of cases occur in people under 20, usually linked to having 60 or more repeats. But despite finding the Huntington gene and identifying the triplet expansion, researchers have little clue about what Huntington actually does in normal cells in the brain and in the rest of the body, let alone how an extra bunch of glutamines in the protein might cause the disease, if indeed it's the protein that's causing the problem. Maybe all those extra glutamines make the protein very sticky so it gums up the inner workings of brain cells. Perhaps the defective Huntington protein dilutes out important functions that are normally carried out by the healthy version. There's also evidence to suggest that a strange little shortened form of Huntington might be the rogue agent at work. A further nine hereditary neurological diseases have since been found that are due to expansions of those three little letters, CAG, all in unrelated genes. And in all cases, it's still not entirely clear why the increased array of repeats causes the condition. But although knowing about the genetic fault responsible for Huntington's disease means that members of affected families can opt for genetic testing if they wish, as well as techniques like prenatal testing and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis if they want to start a family, what they really, really want is an effective treatment for people living with the condition right now. There is some hope in the form of an exciting gene therapy technique being pioneered by Professor Sarah Tabrizi at UCL and her international team of collaborators. She's been running small clinical trials of antisense oligonucleotides, short genetic messages that cancel out the repetitive Huntington's gene so that the faulty protein doesn't get made. People got very excited by her early results, announced in December 2017. Yay! which showed that the highest doses of the treatment could lead to a 40% reduction in the amount of faulty Huntington present in the fluid around the patient's brains. But that is just the start of it. Tabrizi's trial was only designed to test delivery and safety of the treatment, and she still needs to prove that it actually makes a difference to patient's symptoms and outcomes in the short or longer term. Other researchers are investigating whether new gene editing techniques like CRISPR could be used to snip out the extra repeats. Getting gene therapy and CRISPR tools into enough nerve cells in the brain to make a difference is a big challenge. But it seems to be the best approach on the table right now. Dedicated researchers, charities and family organisations are pulling together to write a new ending for the story of Huntington's disease. so they say. But if you're determined to finally drop the pounds and get in shape in 2019, then genetics is here to help. Come along to the Royal Institution in central London on Friday the 11th of January at 7pm to hear Dr Giles Yeo talk about his new book, Gene Eating, The Science of Obesity and the Truth About Diets, to find out whether you really can blame your genes with a G for the fact that you can no longer fit into your genes with a J. Go to rigb.org to buy tickets and use the code UNZIPPED01 at the checkout to get £6 off a standard ticket. That's rigb.org and use the code UNZIPPED01. sound unlikely, but a chicken virus has won three Nobel Prizes. Obviously, not by putting on a teeny tiny lab coat and safety specs, but the Rouse sarcoma virus, RSV, which causes cancer in chickens, has been the starting point for startling discoveries that have changed our understanding of genetics, molecular biology, cancer and more. In fact, viruses have played a key part in at least 16 Nobels over the past century. Not bad work for tiny bags of genes loitering on the edge of life. In its simplest form, a virus is a piece of genetic material, either DNA or RNA, encapsulated in a protein coat and small enough to evade detection using a normal light microscope. Unlike bacteria and other bigger organisms, viruses can't replicate on their own, instead relying on hijacking the replication machinery of living cells. Despite this limitation, they get absolutely everywhere. From bacteria and amoeba viruses to viruses infecting every species of plants and animals, where there's life, there's viruses. Most people probably think of viruses as the agents responsible for some of the most widespread and serious diseases we know of, including smallpox, HIV, measles, Ebola and influenza. We also now know that some viruses can trigger cells to run out of control and form tumours, such as the Rouse sarcoma virus in chickens, breast tumour viruses that affect mice and feline leukaemia virus, which causes blood cancer in cats. Other viruses merely significantly increase the risk that cells will run out of control, such as the human papillomavirus, HPV, which is strongly linked to cervical cancer and several other forms of the disease. And on the more mundane side, viruses are responsible for illnesses like the common cold and stomach upsets. than thinking of viruses as a pain in the posterior, geneticists have a lot to thank viruses for. Since the discovery of the first virus in the 1880s, that's tobacco mosaic virus or TMV, a rod-shaped virus that causes mottling on the leaves of tobacco plants, studying these tiny particles has shed light on many of the fundamental processes in biology. Just take the example of the Rouse sarcoma virus, which was discovered in 1911 by US researcher Peyton Rouse, who noticed that injecting a cell-free extract of mashed-up chicken tumour into healthy birds could induce tumours to form. In 1975, David Baltimore, Renato Dolbeco and Howard Temin won a Nobel Prize for discovering that RSV and other similar viruses could turn their RNA-based genome back into DNA and insert themselves into the host genome, an act known as reverse transcription. As well as smashing the established wisdom that information couldn't flow from RNA back to DNA, retroviruses like RSV, along with others such as HIV that came along later, rewrote our understanding of how viruses can interact with the genome. What's more, discovering and purifying the reverse transcriptase enzyme revolutionised molecular biology, enabling researchers to turn any piece of RNA back into more stable and easily manipulated DNA. Another RSV-based Nobel went to Michael Bishop and Harold Varmus in 1989. While using the latest fancy DNA mapping and sequencing techniques, they were very confused to see that healthy chicken cells appeared to contain the same genes as RSV, without being infected by the virus. This led Bishop and Varmus to discover oncogenes. These are normal genes inside cells that are usually responsible for controlling cell growth and proliferation. If these genes become mutated and overactive, then a cell will grow out of control into a cancer. This is the fundamental genetic basis for tumour formation and utterly transformed our understanding of how cancers grow. And Nobel number three for RSV is Peyton Rouse himself, who eventually got a Nobel Prize in 1966 at the grand old age of 87, more than five decades after publishing his initial findings. (laughs) Other viruses have enabled us to see inside the black box of genetics in different ways. Researchers studying viruses have used their relatively simple, repeating structures to develop powerful techniques like crystallography. French scientists François Jacob, Jacques Monod and André Lwoff won a Nobel in 1965 for figuring out how genes are switched on and off, using little more than powerful logic and a bunch of viruses that infect bacteria, known as bacteriophages. And in 1952, Alfred Hershey and Martha Chase used viruses to prove that DNA is the genetic instructions inside a cell, with a little help from a kitchen blender. Sadly, Chase wasn't able to receive a share of Hershey's 1969 Nobel Prize, despite doing virtually all of the practical work. And of course, there's plenty of benefit in studying viruses themselves, and not only in order to develop vaccines and treatments for viral diseases. Viruses are the mainstay of gene therapy, due to their ability to sneak into cells and deliver a genetic payload. And they're often used as a way to deliver gene editing tools like CRISPR into cells. And researchers are investigating whether bacteriophage viruses could be a useful way to get around the problem of antibiotic resistance. Finally, the weird and wonderful world of viruses shows us what's possible in biology. In 2003, scientists were shocked to discover a simply enormous virus that infects amoebas, as big as some bacteria and large enough to be seen with a normal light microscope. This viral freak of nature, known as Mimivirus, has now been joined by other giant viruses – well, giant in viral terms – which have unusually complex genomes and many genes that have previously only been associated with cellular organisms. And I have no doubt that the viral world has many more secrets waiting to be discovered. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast, with me, Kat Arney. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at Genetics unzip. What's stronger than steel? Than bulletproof Kevlar, can withstand temperatures ranging from 200 Celsius down to minus 40, can stretch up to five times its length without breaking, and is made by squeezing goop out of an arachnid's backside. The answer is, of course, spider silk, one of the most remarkable substances produced by a living organism that we know of. It's also a fibre that humans have been exploiting for thousands of years, from Aboriginal fishing lines and Pacific Islanders' nets to crosshairs in telescopes and gun sights in more recent years. Spider silk's naturally antimicrobial and hypoallergenic characteristics have also seen it put to good use in medicine. As Roman author Pliny the Elder noted, "'For a cobweb astringeth, refrigerateth, soldeth, joineth together, not suffering rotten or filthy material to remain.'" And cobwebs were often used as bandages in the ancient world. An old Chinese remedy also suggests that a cobweb placed secretly beneath the collar on the seventh day of the seventh month will cure forgetfulness and dull mental conditions— although I am less convinced of the evidence base for that one. But it's spider silk's physical properties, as well as its medicinal benefits, that are getting researchers excited, with potential uses including lightweight, waterproof and even bulletproof clothing, ropes, nets, sails, parachutes, bandages and all sorts of other biomedical devices. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to farm spiders and make them produce webs to order – not helped by the fact that good silk spinners, like golden orb spiders, have the annoying tendency of wanting to bite each other's heads off if they're kept in captivity together. Although it is possible to milk the silk from a spider, it certainly isn't an easy job. French entomologist René-Antoine Ferschel de Rameur was the first person known to have given it a go back in 1709, collecting silk from egg sacs in an attempt to make stockings and gloves. 300 years later, a team of 70 people spent four years making an 11-by-4-foot fabric from silk extracted from more than a million gold orb spiders in Madagascar. I do recommend taking a look at the article in Wired about how this was done, from designing a replica 19th century spider milking machine to extract the silk from the spiders, to the challenge of finding enough willing volunteers to collect a million wild arachnids and attach them to the device, especially because these spiders like to bite. Here comes the black spider I feel the
1: rage inside
0: her Step up the black spider Rather than ever larger banks of spider milking machines, the solution to mass produced spider silk lies in genetic engineering. The key components of spider silk are spidroin proteins, encoded by, unsurprisingly, spidroin genes. The first spiderin gene, spydroin 1, was identified in 1990. With spydroin 2 following two years later, both from an American species of golden orb weaver called Nephila clavipes, also known as the banana spider. And now we know the sequences of the spider silk genes. Researchers can put them to work, using genetic engineering techniques to insert spiderin genes into more biddable organisms that will churn out silk proteins to order. One idea is to produce spidroin in E. coli bacteria, which can be easily grown up in bulk in the lab. But spidroins are large, repetitive proteins, which makes them tricky for the bugs to manufacture. Other labs have worked on getting spydroin genes into tobacco and potato plants so that they will produce spidroin. But by far the most fantastic idea comes from Professor Randy Lewis. In 2011, at the University of Wyoming, he announced that he had managed to put spiderin genes into a female goat, Freckles, so she would produce silk proteins in her milk. <coughs> Sadly, this spider goat couldn't spin webs or scale buildings like Spider-Man, but she did spark a huge amount of interest in the possibility of large-scale silk farming. Lewis trademarked his resulting silk, which he called Biosteel, and set up a company, Nexia Biotechnologies, to exploit the idea. Lewis now maintains a breeding colony of around 30 spider goats at his new lab at Utah State University. That's all for now. You can still watch the fantastic Royal Institution Christmas lectures on iPlayer in partnership with the Genetic Society and featuring the fantastic Alice Roberts, Aoife McLeisert and Fran Scott, all of whom appeared in the last episode of Genetics Unzipped to give us a sneak peek behind the scenes. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at GeneticsUNzip or email me podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please, please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows from and it would be really great if you could rate and review. And more importantly, spread the word. Tell your friends, send out a tweet, hassle your department, share the big biological love. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world, dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme tune was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mail, and that spidery song is Black Spider by Sunday Driver. Thanks for listening.